Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. Hi, Laura. I'm Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist. How are you tonight? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm glad you're being so peppy tonight. You'll make up for me. (laughs) I'm trying. (laughs) Yeah. That's why we're a great team. Yeah. Yeah, we're both lumpy on Sunday nights, but we rally for the show. So we rally and for the show. Now you are playing right now, so you know I'm dedicated to this show because I'm not going to watch it for the next hour. Oh wow, Johnny and I were just saying we were just talking about tournament time coming up, and oh, I hope <laughs> we don't have any games during UK or IU isn't playing during Sunday night during the show. IU's playing right now. Uh, they just started at 6, so I'll be able to see the second half, which is when it really happens or doesn't, so I'll be fine. Well, when you're distracted, I'll know what the reason is tonight. Yeah. <laughs> at least I'm going to blame it on that. <laughs> oh, well, tonight's show, today is uh, Sunday, February 19th, and tonight's show is something I don't think we've ever done before in this format. We're going to talk about... Sample sessions or session outlines and how our typical sessions look. And this question was from, I think, a therapist named Erica. And I think she's a a speech pathologist. But I could be wrong. She could be an early interventionist, a developmental interventionist, special instructor, developmental therapist, Whatever. Um, whatever. I wish they could come in. up with one name for us, so maybe somebody, people would know what we were. People always say, what is a developmental interventionist? And I find that a very difficult question to answer, which is ironic since I do it all day, every day. But You don't say so, you're an educator for young children? No. That's not no. what you say? I don't. You don't? You no, say you're a therapist? That's what yeah. I would say. I do, um, even though a lot of service coordinators kind of explain this as like, oh, they're kind of like a preschool teacher for zero to three-year-olds. And I always kind of think, I don't really know that that fits my brand of therapy. But um, right. then I go on to stumble over what it is that I really do. And I think that's because it so depends on the child that it's very hard exactly. to say exactly what I do yeah. in, in an easy format. So right. anyway. Well, and that's such a good segue into tonight's show because the question is, I've, I've pulled it up and it's from Erica, and again, I really think she's a speech pathologist, but she's, she says, if you have a moment, could you and Kate share some information on what a typical home visit or session looks like and uh, like how do you plan, what do you do when you first get to a home, what activities do you do when, and how you wrap up a session? And I think that's a great question. And again, when we're doing something new for the show that we feel like we've never really addressed, in, I mean, we've addressed this, but not in one specific show dedicated to this. So I'm excited about this show. And the, the references that we'll be mentioning tonight are on TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page, and I have a couple of articles referenced there. And then I also have a link to the therapy manual, because there's a whole chapter 
devoted to planning effective sessions in that therapy manual. Kate, I, I sent you an email right before the show. I don't, you probably haven't had a chance to look at that, but those references are there. You have that in your email. Okay. We're talking about this tonight. Okay. Um, so... What let's let's just kind of start with her first question for this. How do you plan a visit or a session? And it's just what you said. It depends on the kid as to what your plan would be. It's going to certainly depend on the child's developmental level, where he or she is functioning. It depends on what your primary focus is for that child. We talk a lot about I have what I call the hierarchy for treatment for toddlers with communication delays and disorders. And, you know, we talk about this every week. With <laughs> First, we look at a child's social skills, then we look at receptive language, then we look at expressive language, and then we look at intelligibility. So we're certainly, while we might be modeling expressive language or, or recasting for speech intelligibility, that would not be our focus for a kid that we still didn't have a really good social engagement or good connection with or relationship with. So certainly those sessions look different and we plan different activities or different, even though we might be using the same toy with a child who's developmentally further along or a different goal, we certainly would plan those activities to have a different slant. So it really, I think, is so highly dependent on what your focus is for that period in therapy. Don't you agree with that? Definitely, which is part of why it's so hard to give these simple answers. But um, <laughs> but we're going to give it a yeah. best shot. Hopefully we don't muddle through it too horribly. So Yeah, I hope not too. One thing that I try to do when I, you know, and first of all let me just say that when I'm planning for sessions, and again every once in a while I'll get an email about this on or a question, and a therapist will say, well, we're just supposed to be consultative. We're not really supposed to do any direct therapy with children. And I am not that kind of therapist, no matter what a state program might be, because I went to school to learn how to treat communication delays and disorders. And parent education is a huge part of that, and I do a great job with that. I mean, that's the focus of the whole darn website, teachmetotalk.com. But... I will never, ever give up my professional right and ability and license and whatever else you want to say not to do direct treatment with a kid. That's what I do. That's what we went to school for. So for therapists just to think that you can accomplish every single thing you need to do with a kid just by giving a mom a bit of advice or two, I really think you've sold yourself short as a professional. And I look at direct treatment with a kid as a way for me to model for a mom what works and what doesn't work and how better else to educate her than to show her how to do it and teach her how to do it. And even after I've done it, I, most of the time I think 99% of sessions are done with the mom right there and participating and really a part of that. And she can ask questions and I can say, coach her through some things. But to give up that whole 
area of treatment really is an injustice to the kids that we see. And I know you feel pretty strongly about that, too. Absolutely. And, you know, Laura, I always chime in with this, and so I'll do my duty here, but I do think it's very, very true, and and that is how in the world could you consult effectively if you haven't tried out what you hope is going to work? And, frankly, sometimes what we hope is going to work is going to work does not necessarily work and so right you know we have to kind of get in there and figure out well what does this child respond to what is he or she like what kind of responses am i getting what can i do to encourage more participation blah 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 blah. you know and anymore we don't even have the privilege of doing the initial evaluations at least in you know first steps in kentucky we have an independent person who goes in and does it and we look at those reports, and we, we go in literally hitting the ground running as far as, okay, this is your first therapy. You know, we have a meeting right. where we may or may not lay eyes on the child, but we don't have any real direct interaction. And then the next, the very first session is, okay, I'm there to have a therapy session. And sometimes I think the the evaluations that we get are dead on, and sometimes I don't. You know, it just depends right. on... How that session, how that eval went, and who may or may have, who administered the assessment. So, I always right. read them thoroughly and and know what they what their perception was, but I don't ever really take that for proof that this is where the child is or isn't. I kind of go in the first session and get a not an official. I don't do an official evaluation, but I certainly get an idea of. Well, what does this child respond to? Well, how social is he or she? Well, how about receptive language skills? Does he seem to be understanding most of what I'm asking him to do? You know, you can get a real good idea, even though you might not be able to get standardized scores based on that. You can certainly get a very good working knowledge mm-hmm. of how well is right. this child really responding. You know, what right. what's typical for him or her? And then you have some idea what you have to build on or where you need to start. Right, and one thing that I'm doing, and I've done it all my career, where I'm the replacement therapist and and kind of go in is when things aren't moving so well in a parent's opinion and they want somebody else to take a look, and I'm getting to do more of that now. And so I might get a kid's first evaluation, but then I have the benefit of having usually a pretty lengthy email from a mom that says... These are the things it can do, but this is all the stuff I'm still worried about or concerned about, or this is why I don't feel like I feel like we're stuck or I feel like we're in a rut or I just need some new ideas. So that's always interesting to me, too, to kind of have a parent spin on that. And when you when you don't work in an early intervention setting or if it's a child has been in a program for a while and you kind of come in as, you know, kind of mid-plan, Sometimes you're going to have the benefit of getting information that you might not have gotten from the very beginning, and I always think that's interesting too. Um, do you get a well? And I guess the reason that I'm pointing that out is I pretty much built a career on being the replacement person. So again, <laughs> that's kind of a different take when you don't when you when you might have some information kind of ongoing that you didn't have at the beginning. And I know lots of the therapists that listen to us, too, don't necessarily do home visits. They might be um, clinic-based or even school-based. So I want us to try to 
think about that a little bit tonight, too, as we're giving these recommendations. But our primary focus has been and will continue to be home visits for birth to three therapists. But I did want to point that out because I know we have a lot of a lot of listeners who don't necessarily do what we do. So right. I wanted to yeah, Laura, that. I've been having that experience more, which is um, always interesting when you go in. Lately, I'm either replacing somebody or somebody's called me in because, like you described, the parents aren't necessarily thrilled with how the child's doing. They feel like right. maybe there's something additional that might help. Um and it's always kind of interesting to see what's been done and what hasn't and what, you know, is right. going to work maybe a little bit more effectively. And, and Yeah, and sometimes therapists get a little bit upset with me on Facebook or on the website, not so much on the website because I think on the website people feel like, okay, this is your it's your territory. I'm not, I'm not going to be rude to you right here. But sometimes on Facebook some people, some therapists will kind of pop on a little bit and say, how can you say that that's inappropriate? You haven't seen that kid or you haven't, you haven't, you know, how can you say that not that that therapist should have done this or should have done that? And I want to just say, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, and it is always kind of nice for us to get to be armchair quarterbacks here and talking about these things and talking about situations that may be a little bit more theoretical than actual real life. But part of the reason we get to do this is because we've done this for a long time now. <laughs> and even our show is in its fourth year, third year, I don't know. Um, And so we do have the benefit of two of not only do we have the personal experience and the personal caseloads, and that's what most of our information, I would think, has been based on. But hasn't it been interesting over these last three years, four years, however long it's been, with the phone calls that we get and the emails that we get and the letters that we get. And it is nice that we can start to kind of see some trends and point out some commonalities and be able to say, okay, this is where we, this is what we hear a lot that doesn't work. So right. let me give you some better options. So yeah. I wanted to just kind of pre, you know, get it out there at the beginning of the show in case this is someone's very first time to listen to us that um, that's kind of, that this is what we do. And so while we're talking today, it will be really based on our personal experiences over the last 10, 15, 20 years <laughs> working in all of the all of the calls and emails and all those other things that we, all those other great extras that we've gotten to do career-wise. So I wanted to just kind of get that out there too. All right, so when we're planning, we certainly take into account, excuse me, the kid's developmental level. While I'm planning my activities, if I don't know the child very well yet, I've done this long enough to know pretty much what kids like. And, Kate, you were joking with me last week when we were talking about something, and you said, it's a winner, because I say that when... (laughs) When you find an activity or a toy or something that has almost universal appeal. And so when I'm planning sessions for kids who, again, I'm just getting to know them, those are the kinds of things that I might want to be sure that I have in the bag. And, again, I never go in a home 
without being prepared and without taking my materials. And for us, that's toys. And again, this kind of piggybacks on the whole consultative kind of thing. Um, I, I would I would never show up at a visit unless it's a monsoon and I'm going to get too wet getting <laughs> from the car to the home. I mean, I can count on my hands really the number of days that's happened in my career. I always take things so that I'm prepared for the session. And we've talked a lot about that on the show, but boy, doesn't that come up a lot in everyday life, in, in um your practice and my practice in meeting with parents who want a second opinion and who say, oh, my gosh, look at all these great toys. Uh, my therapist doesn't ever bring anything. Or a therapist might say, what do you have and do? And you talk about the toys that you take, and they kind of scratch their heads and say, oh, I don't ever take any toys. Mm-hmm. That's a shock to me because, to me, that seems like you're showing up unprepared. And and I would never do that. And, again, I know we talk about this almost every week, but it's still shocking to me that that's kind of standard practice for a lot of people. It is, Laura, and it's kind of shocking to me, too. And, you know, I I just, that's a rule that I choose to break, and you and I have had a longstanding joke about, we'll be the two oldest therapists dragging in our bed. The last thing we're going to give up is that, arsenal of toys that are so near and dear to our hearts, but um, it's so important to what we do, even in those cases where families do have a lot of toys, there is something just so novel and exciting about some person coming to their house with a bag of toys that... You've um, called it the Santa Claus effect before, yeah. Right. I mean, it's just, you know, and parents always Note, you know, I've had plenty of cases, as I'm sure you've had, where I'm bringing something the child actually has, and just because I've brought it in in my big bag of tricks, in my big bag of toys, it's more exciting, and the kid's playing with it, and he's, you know, mom says to herself, but you can hear it, he has that toy, and he never plays with it. And it's like, yeah, well, Uh you didn't present it the way I presented it. I brought it in like it was the coolest thing in the world. And his is at the bottom of the toy box, and he doesn't care about it. But, yeah, that's just yeah. something. And I that's, I have yet, let's knock on wood, and the more we uh, put the word out there, maybe the more we jeopardize our, our position on this, but I have never heard of the state of Kentucky really saying anything to anybody about you brought toys. They have certainly made... Um, made it known at various points over the years that they thought it was best practice not to. And I would challenge anybody coming up with that rule to do it and tell me that their session went better than mine, you know. (laughs) Right. And I think in theory what they want, what what the theory is, and again, I don't want to keep beating this horse, dead horse, because we talk about this a lot. I want to move on, but we're both passionate about it. In theory, it is because they want you to really use what's in the kid's natural environment, and they don't want the parent to feel like, well, he just responded that way because you had that cool toy. And always part of your session with a therapist, with a parent as a therapist, you're going to say, but, Mom, you have this, and you can do this, and you can do this. And one thing that I like to talk about and show parents is you don't have to have every toy that a kid owns out and available all the time. You can put a lot of things away and really rotate through. And the, when sometimes when a child has fewer toys and fewer options, all the toys become more exciting because they don't just have access to them 
all the time. So that's one of the reasons that you can talk about bringing in a toy and, again, making it novel and making it fun and using that as kind of your education angle for parents. And, you know, with even though he has this, again, like you said, this is the way we're going to present it, this is the way we're going to use it. And I've had a lot of moms decide because the toy bag works so well and, and again, the, the way that you can have your toys packaged or, you know, I have those two-and-a-half-gallon clear Ziploc bags. And, Kate, you have a lot of cute crafty bags that you've made. You have talents that I don't have. You know, when you show a parent that you can use that, even that packaging or that way that you've put it up and you've brought it out and made it exciting, that is so enticing. And, again, the novelty of that. So being able to show a parent that is going to be a lot different than just telling them, you need to put some of this stuff away. And, you know, uh, what I started to say is a lot of parents have started to really think about that and even have their when they're doing their mommy therapy time or their one-on-one play time they they put a lot of toys away like in a top shelf of a closet and only bring those out when they're going to play together and that's been really successful for lots of parents that uh, I've worked with and then we've heard parents that have called us in on the called in on the show that have said how well that's really worked for them too right and you know it's interesting sometimes Laura it's the very kids who have issues with really slowing down and actually playing with toys, you know, showing a preference for, for a variety of toys. They, Those kids that I lovingly refer to as rather scattered, and by that I mean they flip from one thing to another, to another, to another, to another, never really stopping long enough to engage in real functional play. They just kind of tap on this and throw that and wiggle this, and, you know, and those kids a lot of times... Those are the very kids that have so many toys, and I think that is a result of the fact that parents recognize, well, he doesn't really seem to like anything, and if they're fortunate enough to have the means to get more, they think, well, maybe I just don't have the right toy, and they go buy Mm -hmm. more toys, and pretty soon they have a whole room devoted, whether it be the child's room or the family room or whatever, devoted to toys, and it, and really what i find is the more toys they have sometimes the more it almost encourages that flitting and the uh-huh. less actual functional play because they have it's almost overwhelming a lot of times those right. kids do kind of have some sensory issues and they're just kind of flitting around tapping away not really stopping and playing with things long enough to learn from them or even enjoy them and those parents a lot of times when we say you know, maybe putting some of these things away, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. exactly. beneficial. And a lot of times when they do, they do begin to limit and restrict and, you know, cycle in things and cycle out things and have less available, kids do stop flitting quite so much and stop and, right. and engage in real play all of a sudden. So uh-huh. that can certainly be helpful. It can totally be helpful. One more thing I wanted to say about this, too. Um, therapists that work in the school setting or the clinical setting uh, really kind of gasp when you would say to them that you wouldn't bring your own toys or that you don't come with a plan or a pre-made activity. And if you think back to your clinical training, you could never just tell your supervisor, oh, I'm going to wing it today. Let's just see what happens. Why do we think we do that now? I mean, it's crazy. We're still professionals and still therapists. I always tell the joke, too, in the conferences when I'm talking about this, in the conferences that I do, that if I went to a physician and he said, hey, you got a blood pressure cuff in your purse that I can use, you know, 
we expect professionals to show up prepared with materials, so why wouldn't we be the same way? And that goes, too, for even having a plan with what you're going to do with toys. It's not just enough to throw a few things in a bag. I mean, you can tell therapists that do that, too, that have had the same toys in the same bag for week after week after month after month. That gets bored. That's just as boring as not taking anything Anything. And so you have to be sure that you're thinking about the developmental level for the child, what goals you'll address, and really making those decisions on a kid-by-kid basis. If you drive from home to home, I'm hoping that if all the lesson planning you do is on the drive there, at least that's better than nothing. (laughs) So that may be what you're thinking about is what are we going to work on today? How did he do last week? What toys did he like? What toys didn't he like? What do I have that might be a little different? Let's build on our successes from last week. What can I take in? And when we talk about our toy bags, and did we talk about this on the show or was this a real-life conversation where you were saying, I have my standards, I think that it was, was it was in in preparation for this show we were okay. talking about in real life. Yeah, our real life conversations are often very much like our podcast <laughs> conversations. There might but be some cursing or things we wouldn't say on the air. Right, but it's pretty this much. Is what we were really talking about. And yes, I have a bag of stand my standards, my golden best toys that almost with a few exceptions are universally appreciated by kids. You know, sure. at least eighteen months to three. Um, if they're really little, it's it's kind of a different arsenal. But if we're talking about kids where the primary focus is communication, usually that's eighteen plus months on. And there are things that, you know, pretty much I can get a kid to appreciate at least for a short time, and that's in my my standard. I have a big old at this point. I just use a cheap. Um, kind of one of those shopping bags you can get at TJ Maxx or Marshalls or whatever and mm-hmm. um I have my standards in there and then if I know the child I always have a, a couple additional toys um you know for 85% of the boys I see there's probably going to be some sort of a Thomas toy because what little boy doesn't love choo choo trains Right. Um, for girls, a lot of times it's my baby bag. Some, you know, has all the baby stuff and all the baby accessories. And sometimes my boys love that too. I don't discriminate. If I can get them to play with it, I'm all for that. Um, but anyway, I want to have a couple extra, kind of maybe a little bit bigger, a little bit more specialized selections. You know, based on if I know mm-hmm. the child well enough to know what they tend to like, then my whole bag of things that are my standards that I always have. And, you know, I do it a little bit differently than that. I have a bag that's like you've described. I love it because it's vinyl. I got it as a present from a family several years ago, and it's really cute, but, boy, is it looking worn at this point. But I love it because you can it can get wet, the bubbles can spill, the snacks can spill. You know, it can get rained on, and I can still wipe it off and keep going. But it's pretty big, and I stand at the trunk or now the back of the SUV, and kind of I have other things in the back, and I take out and put in what I want to do for that particular kid. And so at any given time, depending on how many kids I'm going to see in a day, 
you know, the whole back could be full because, some, you know, I, I don't really schedule developmentally. I schedule geographically. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. if you're going to see a kid in a certain part of town, you might, you know, or you have four or five or six appointments in a day, you may have children that are really addressing lots of different goals and they're at lots of different developmental levels. So I pull in and take out kind of based on that. So the whole back of my car, I mean, I've really been you know, pulled into drive throughs before and somebody looked in the back and said, Oh my gosh, do you have a how many kids do you have? You know, looking at all the toys or are you having a garage sale? The best you know, ones look, once at McDonalds there was a oh, uh, not an older but she wasn't a terribly young gal taking the money and she said, You must be a therapist and I was like She knew yeah, She knew I said how did you know? And she said, oh, my boy, my son was in first steps. I could tell. I thought that was pretty yeah. funny, a very yeah. keen observation. Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, and so I pull out and put in or all that, just kind of making um, to make it appropriate for whatever kid I'm seeing at that point. Um, so you do. I do think there's some level of individualized planning that you need to do for every kid, and even if that's just on the 10 or 15 minute or 30 minute drive to their home, you still need to be making sure that you're doing that for every single kid you see. Even if you've done it for a while, even if you, again, get skilled enough that you have a pretty good autopilot, you still want to be sure that you're planning and thinking and and not getting stale in your presentation with with what you're taking you know and again and I for us hear of that now and again Laura and I'm not out to bash therapists but when I have a mom tell me that their child is no longer or never was particularly inter- interested in a therapist regardless of the discipline 9 times out of 10 when I ask well what does she bring it's either a nothing or b one or two toys the same one or two toys for months on end and I think, well, you know, what kid likes one Elmo toy for three months straight? I mean, seriously. Right. You know, I mean, that would be like us wearing toy. the same outfit. That would be yeah. like wearing the same outfit, the same purse, the same shoes, day yeah. and after it's day. Like, That's boring. Uh, well, yeah, and that does happen. And. You know, I get the the opposite. Well, are you moving in? My gosh, you look like Santa Claus because I bring so many yeah. things. But my theory is, particularly when I don't know a kid very well and I'm not really sure, confident yet, what what's going to work and what isn't, I would much rather pull five things in that I didn't use at all. That's fine with right. me. Rather than right. get stuck 20 minutes into a session with the kid running from me because he's bored and I don't have anything to pull him back, you know. <laughs> right, that's developmentally appropriate, yeah. Right. To me, Or that, or that is, day, interest appropriate, yeah. Right. To me, that's better yeah. than... Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we but have Laura, to really, But, Laura, you have a great... Really um, one of your many articles is about your favorite toys, and I never know how you describe them or how you list them, but that should be said that anybody listening who's just getting their feet wet or trying to figure out how to improve maybe their sessions should look at the list of toys that you've recommended because they really are tried and true, great toys. Exactly. On the website, it's under the category toys. And so if you look at teachmetotalk.com, the yellow, under the banner, there's some pictures of me with kids. And then there are there's a big yellow bar that has 
uh, those are categories. And so one of the categories is toys. And if you click that, then the first article is recommended toys and techniques for targeting language in toddlers. And that is a pretty solid list. And I can safely say all of the standard toys that we talk about and all of the toys that you, again, if you're just beginning and you really think, oh gosh, I can't afford all of this. Yes, you can. These are really basic things. These are things that you could even probably get secondhand. And boy, is Kate the queen of consignment shopping and (laughs) thrift stores and junk stores, as I would say. With getting those things there, but build yourself an arsenal. You need a, a you need a good starting point. And and again, a lot of toys that I use, I've had for ten or fifteen years. Now I might some of the my favorites I've replaced over and over and over because they work so well. But invest in some toys. And you know, this is your craft. This is your career. So do yourself a favor and and buy some stuff and keep it so that you build your own inventory uh, for those things. I can't imagine a therapist who would not have lots and lots and lots of toys like that. And yet I think there are some. But, yeah, and if they consult the list, they'll keep from making some mistakes because sometimes even we veterans look at something and think, oh, that seems good, and then you try it out and it's like, eh. It wasn't so great. Or, you know, and this way they're just looking at a list of things that really have proven themselves over and over and over. Right. And really, Laura, for a couple hundred dollars, a a novice therapist could have a very decent, I mean, it's not going to ravel our matches, but we've been at it a lot of years. Somebody who's new for a couple hundred dollars could have enough to, you know, get started, have success, and build their arsenal as they go along. But it wouldn't take that much money. It wouldn't. It even if you work for someone else and you think, well, I'm not in private practice. I'm not going to do that. Invest in yourself. Right. Make yourself better. And again, I, sometimes, and I know this is, I I feel so almost judgy when I say this, but I want to say that's kind of a character issue. If you don't mm-hmm. care enough about your career <laughs> to want to buy yourself some supplies and and really. Bump yourself up to that next level. Um, so, again, the list might be a good place to get started if you never thought about it in that way. Um, there's also, I've already said there's a whole chapter in the therapy manual, Chapter 10, on planning effective sessions. Have I mentioned that already in the show? I think kind of. I'm not sure you said it. Chapter 10. Okay. It it's in the therapy manual. And uh, it's Teach Me to Talk, the Therapy Manual. And that, that book really outlines the whole hierarchy for treating toddlers with social skills and then receptive and expressive language. And Chapter 10 lists all of the different kind of categories of toys that you use, all of the other considerations that you go, that go into planning a effective sessions with looking at a child's developmental level that we've talked about a lot. A big part of the things that I use when, or something that a big factor that I consider is a child's regulatory level in addition to his interest and preferences. And we already kind of talked about, you mentioned, you know, girls really might like those baby doll toys and boys really might like trains and things. But another big part of planning is looking at a child's regulatory level. And, and I 
think about this for kids. I think that we have really skewed our expectations if we think that a toddler could, especially at the beginning when he doesn't know you and love you yet, that any child between birth to three could sit with you for an hour without moving. I mean, that is totally unrealistic. And I love when I get a kid to that point because I think, boy, I have overridden your natural tendencies to get up and run away by being so fun and picking things that you like and making sure that I'm giving you what you need for you to want to sit here with me. But for more Often than not, you need to plan to build movement into your sessions because that will address all of the regulatory issues that our little friends have. And by planning those movement breaks as a part of therapy instead of a break or something that you do when he doesn't have to do anything, you know, sometimes I'll hear somebody, someone say that phrase, movement break, but their idea is they sit there while the kid runs around and really doesn't continue therapy or interacting. They just kind of let them do their own thing for a few minutes. Well, what kid isn't want to go, isn't going to want to continue to do that? I mean, I think yeah. you just kind of <laughs> disrupted the whole motivation to be with you when you kind of let them do that. So then, of course, they want to run do that because – I. You know, you've you've given them that opportunity. Like, that's an option for me not to sit and want to play with you. And so making sure that you have activities that address their need to move. And the other great thing about movement is so many times we only refer to using movement with children that are busy or scattered or hyper or active. And we certainly need to do movement with those children because their little bodies are telling you, I need this. I want to do this. And so we have to build those activities in. But move, and, and that movement helps them calm down. But we also get the other end of those kids who are on the low arousal end of that continuum who need movement just to stay with you and stay engaged and alert and aroused. And I think sometimes as therapists we forget about those kids because they're kind of easy. They want to plop down for an hour. They're not the ones scrambling to get away. They're just kind of, like you say, Kate, lumpy, little <laughs> little lumps. They just want to be there. And so for those kids, you you have to build movement in for them, too, to get them revved up enough to talk and to understand language and to be more engaged and to be with you, not just totally zoned out. So movement works for every kid on your caseload and if you're the kind of therapist that's just going to want to belt a toddler in a high chair (laughs) to keep him with you for an hour you know there's a better way to do it and so building those movement activities in and taking in toys where you can do those things as a planned part of your session I think that's key and so when a kid starts to act like he's going to run away from me I bring out one of those things, and then running and moving is is still part of therapy, and he's still engaged, and we're still addressing his goals. And so you want to be sure that you always have things planned for that. What are some of your standard movement things that you do, Kate? Balloons, playing with balloons, and I like to let them fly and then Mm -hmm. uh, get the kid to retrieve them. A lot of times 
if I think the kid needs some additional motivation or I want to really continue to engage the kid, I chase the balloon with them, you know, say, I want to get it, I want to get it. And then you fight him for it, I thought you were too old to do that, but apparently (laughs) I'm not. I can still chase balloons. And sometimes I even beat my little two-year-old friends to the balloon. Balloons, um, I like the Sky Dancer, which is an old recalled toy. You know, you pull the string and it flies. Again, it's a lot of movement, um, you know, go chase them sort of thing. All the, oh, the rocket launcher kind of toys or the those uh, motorcycle toys that you hot have. Hot Wheels motorcycles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hot Wheels motor. Anything where it's going across the room very quickly um, seems to be, you know, because that allows for getting up and running and grabbing it and coming back and putting it back in and doing it again. So yeah. those sorts of things are my go-to movement things where there's action it goes away from us we chase after it we get it we go back we do it again you know it gets them up it gets them moving and brings them back when i want to when i want to bring them back so those are my standards bubbles those are bubbles too i was going to say bubbles and you know you don't even have to you don't have to sit in one place to do bubbles and even if you have a kid that's sitting you can still get him really moving with having him smack the bubble on the floor with a big um, gesture rather than popping it in the air. You can kick bubbles. You can have kids try to blow the bubbles while the bubbles are floating, you know, any kind of silly thing. Sometimes I'll say, get it with your elbow, if it's a kid that's a little older and might understand the whole elbow, or get it with your knee. And -and two-and-a-half-year-olds think that's just hysterical when you pop bubbles with other parts of your body that uh, they haven't done before. Um, so I've even had kids try and, uh, try, encourage kids to try and eat them before, not off yeah. the wand, but in the air, because that's, again, hysterical for some reason. So it's like, whatever. You want to eat them? I'll eat them with you. <laughs> yeah, and you do a big, you know, thing right. to make the bit, little vocal play. Yeah. So that's a great thing It gets them moving, and it gets them engaged, and they think it's funny. So... Yeah, other things that you can do or you can come up with, I call these processing games that you build movement into that, and there's some great examples on Teach Me to Listen and Obey, one and two, those DVDs, and in the therapy manual. But you even would use these with kids that are higher level. And, again, you could adjust it based on what the developmental level is. But for a kid who's who can do puzzles, but maybe this has gotten a little bit boring for him, Put the puzzle on the other side of the room, and you or mom stay with the pieces on one side of the room, and then you have him get a piece. And if you're if he's talking or signing or you know when you're doing requesting, have him name the piece as you get it, and then you run, put it in the puzzle, and then run back. And if you have a kid that's really working on receptive language, you do that first, but then you give them the the command or the following the directions. If you're just doing, you know, one step, you would say go get the truck. But if you're doing two-step directions, you could work on the prerequisite for that, which would be bringing you back two items on request. And that running and making that puzzle a race, that's so much fun. And it's a great way to involve siblings. Sometimes I'll use one nine-piece puzzle and let both kids, you know, look at the same thing. But sometimes I'll have the older child have their own puzzle so everybody's just... Still kind of doing their own thing and not having to share too much, but we're we're kind of running and coming and going. And that's a way 
to add movement too. And I think that's something that a lot of therapists don't, and parents don't think about, making a puzzle more active like that. But it's a fun, fun way to do it. Um, on Therapy Tip of the Week this week that I'll be putting up Tuesday or Wednesday, I'm going to talk about those auditory processing games and show you some of those. So if you're listening to this and haven't seen that video yet, um, take a look at that, hopefully. Now that I've said it, I have to do it. But that, that's what I had planned for this week is to talk about how to use some of those games. And you might even, as um, as a developmental interventionist like Kate, work in some matching or work in some other kind of cognitive concepts too. But using those games are really fun ways to involve movement and you're still addressing your therapy goals, sometimes in a better way than you could just using that puzzle with with more of a sit-down, quiet activity. So I love to use those kinds of things. That being said, Laura, I will say that, let's see, how do I want to put this? Your brand of therapy, which I uh, do my best to practice, I think helps kids who tend to have focus problems, and I think in general the kids that we treat don't necessarily focus as well as typically developing kids. Oftentimes that is one of their issues. And when you take a very high-energy, very playful, fun, animated, even sometimes goofy, um, you know, approach, that really helps a lot of kids stay with things longer. Mm -hmm. Um, I frequently, when I'm the replacement therapist or the supplemental therapist, as I've become lately, um, that's kind of what I hear a lot early on is, wow, he really stayed with you really well. He doesn't really do that with so-and-so. And And I think a lot of times it's because I go in there, even if I'm not feeling it when I walk in, I'm pretty good at turning it on. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a very Rally. high energy. Yes, I. You know, and it's so infectious. And I. This is the one message that we sometimes say when we're not on the show is I wish therapists, more therapists, or at least certain therapists understood that if they could fake it for a little bit, that they're going to see such, you know, such mm-hmm. obvious response, success. success from a kid that once you see, oh, my gosh, he did so much better, he did stuff that I've never gotten him able to to do in the past, when you realize how effective that is, then you you just you dig deep and you turn it on. You're able, you realize, wow, it's not just a nice thing, it's a critical thing. And right. so when you practice your brand of therapy and you go in always, whether you're feeling it or not initially, you, you go in there with that very high affect, very animated, very playful, very exaggerated, um, all those things that we're always kind of talking about. Kids do really, really respond, and mm-hmm. we don't tend to lose kids as much as a therapist right. who is more uh, sedate. More laid back. Who is, yes, right. more laid back. They're just kind of, you know, passive and following the child's lead and not really uh, get, holding their interests or their their focus. Um, so, you know, although, yes, we work those movement things in because some most kids we see need those regardless, we don't tend to lose them as much either because we're more exciting. You know, we're, we're, right. we're, right. we're more fun. So, yeah. And I know that's a hard thing to – I think the best way for a therapist to get what you mean by that is to watch your DVDs and really see it in action because I think – 
a lot of therapists sometimes think or some therapists sometimes think they do that. But when and I years ago, my very first encounter with you actually sitting in front of a kid, I remember the child I remember the situation, and I remember You're going to have to tell me what kid that is sometime off the air, because you've referred to this a lot, and I don't really remember that day. I'll just tell you, but go ahead. Well, I do, and it was in a daycare, and it was one of those situations where we both just ended up there at the same time, and I kind of knew you from the phone, but I didn't really know you well, and, you know, we both decided it was cool to stay, and we both saw the child at once. And it was my aha moment. That was back before he had books and DVDs and conferences, and you were just a really good therapist. In the but 90s. I, in the 90s. And I left. In the 1900s. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it was my aha moment when I had that revelation when I thought, I didn't get it all, but I got that I really, and this is, again, your terminology that you used on me many years ago, and I've quoted you many times. I needed to ratchet it up, and I didn't really realize that I was. I thought I did that, and I, and we hear that a lot. You know, we hear that yeah. a lot now, and you hear it certainly more than I do. But I think we all think we do that, but until you really, really see it and you really, really put it into practice and appreciate what a positive effect that has on the child and on the session in general, then you right. really – it's – Critical, and I think that that's oftentimes overlooked and mm-hmm. um, critically important to being good. It is critically important, and a lot of people, I think, what you just said, do think they they kind of do that. And so when a, when a therapist says that, and I've had you know back when we had our playgroup program and we would hire people and I would talk to them about the job and stuff, I would say, now I don't know what your kind of normal. If we were a one to ten on kind of the activity level or your own affect or how animated you are. If you're a five, I need you to be a seven. If you're a three, I need you to be a five. You know, if you're an eight, bump it on up because whatever you are to start with, you've got to go a level or two above that to even sort of get close to where you think you are, where you need to be. And so, and a lot of therapists are kind of balk at that and mm-hmm. say, I don't really want to do that, but a lot of parents, I mean, that's the thing that I hear over and over and over is I cannot believe you got him to do that. I cannot believe he stayed with you like that. I can't believe how happy he was and he didn't cry and he didn't get mad and he worked his honey off for you today. And I just, it's so effective that, like you said, once you start to do that, and you make, I mean, you need to be tired at the end of the day. <laughs> and if you're a therapist and you're not, then you're probably not hitting where you need to be affect-wise and right. animated-wise and that whole thing. And it doesn't, you can't really start at a 2 or a 3 and get to a 7 or an 8. That's going to be too unnatural for you. But you do need to bump it up another couple of notches, and then from there you'll be able to move it on up. And it is contagious. I mean, a lot of times I'll have moms that are kind of lumpy. Mm -hmm. And then after 20 minutes or so, their eyes are bright and big, too, and they're leaning forward, and they're sitting right there playing with us. And they may look as glazed over and as tired as a kid by the end of the hour. (laughs) And that's okay because I want them to see that whole change and how that makes a big difference. And I'll tell moms, you can't be like this all day, every day. 
but you can be like this during your one-on-one playtime with your kid. And then they well, see how effective that is. But therapists need to do it every every session, every kid, every day. It's it's required. If you can't do that, you don't need to be working with toddlers. It's the truth. I, well, and you know, Laura, when I have moms tell me that when I'm I've come in late in the game for whatever reason, and I just had it last week where, you know, the mom said, wow, he really did great. He normally doesn't stay with the other therapist so well, and he doesn't really perform like that. A lot of times I think, really? Because it's not, I mean, I didn't think this kid um, primarily it wasn't has. hard. Yeah. No, he has speech issues, and he's bright, and, you know, socially he's intact, and really his issues are primarily speech. And in our world, that's a pretty easy kid in a lot of ways because they have a good social connection. They have good receptive skills. They have good play skills. And he he did really well, but, you know, when it's your first session, you don't know, is that good for him? Is that standard for him? Is that? And she went on to say that was really great for him, and I, I was thrilled. You know, that's great. But I was also kind of surprised because I thought, he's not a hard kid. I didn't have to work really very hard at all to keep him with me you know he just I did took your normal stuff right i just kind of did my normal thing i was also kind of looking at where he was receptively because i didn't really know at least i didn't feel like i had experienced it and i always kind of like to see it for myself even if somebody else has said he has good receptive language skills i want to see that at least superficially so that i'm confident yes he does have good receptive language skills um yeah, and it was really just because I did my normal high energy, really playful, really animated, kept it fun, and, you know, I took in way more than we needed because he focused really well. He stayed with things a long time, and it wasn't right. really any, and I thought, it just, you know, it's like, well, how can he be a kid where his the other therapist has troubles keeping him on one activity when I wasn't really working? I mean, some kids it doesn't. Even if you are all of those things, they are really not able to stay right. with one activity exactly. for very long. They just yeah. don't have the developmental skills to do it. But this kid did. You know, he was right. with it. He was enjoying it. He was fun. He was performing. And it really is just that. It's that she doesn't really ratchet it up very high. And right. so he – go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I went to, um, I saw Nancy Kaufman again in December, and I like her so much, and I've talked about her a lot on the show. But she says when parents tell her that all the time, and she has children, you know, come in from all over the United States and all over the world to see her because she's an apraxia expert, and they'll say to her, nobody else has ever gotten that much. And she said initially in her career she would feel so proud about that, and she was so excited, but then she started to feel really sad, and then she kind of moved to mad, like, why aren't people in my profession doing better? And she said, and this is how she describes her sessions, and I think that it's so applicable. She says, I'm demanding, but I'm fun. And kids Mm -hmm. know that they I have a high standard and they have to work, but it's a lot of fun for both of us while we're doing it. And I think that's a great way to look at it. You have to have the balance. You can be fun and just accomplish nothing, too. I right, mean, I've seen right. some parents that I think, okay, you've got the fun part, but can we please channel that a little bit yeah. <laughs> so that we're doing something productive? <laughs> like a mom will email and say, 
my husband really plays with my little girl, but he just jabbers. He doesn't use any real words. And I mm-hmm. think, well, okay, that's a waste of all yeah. that playfulness because you could really use that. And then sometimes you have people who know what to say and what to work on. They just don't know how to work on it. So you've, And I call that, you know, we've got to mix art and science. You've got to have both of those things. And I kind of like the whole demanding but fun part better because you have to have you have to be fun you have to be on but you have to have the right expectations too to get kids to really they have to know that they want to stay with you and that you expect them to participate in the best way that they can and they're not going to go all running off and willy-nilly on you that's not part of it you don't get to take the cool toy and go over in the corner you have to do it together right (laughs) there are a few strings attached now aren't they right yeah, you know, Laura, it's funny because I hear both things. You're really fun or you make them do it. And it does seem like I hear you make them do it more in recent years than I used to. And I do think that's – and it's because you are making it so fun that you're able right. to, quote, unquote, make them do mm-hmm. it. Because right. those therapists who aren't fun, who make them do it, are the ones that hit the door and the kid goes running and crying because she's arrived. And that, you know – right. I know I know I'm making progress when I see a kid at the door. He's got a big huge grin and he runs in the middle of the room and sits down ready to play. It's like, okay, exactly. we we're getting yeah. there. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And because so you have they to know have all those things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They understand. And, and, yeah, she's going to put restrictions on me. She's going to put demands on me. She's going to withhold some things, but boy, it's going to be fun. So I'm cool with that. Right. And they are able to right. do things that they couldn't otherwise do if you didn't have them in that just right place of wanting to participate. Go ahead. Well, and I was going to say, I've got it in an article that I linked on the Facebook page about that, and her name is Tracy Vale, and I've read her stuff a lot. She's on the apraxia-kids.org website, and her she's got a great article that talks about how we condition kids to play with us and how we set the expectation that they will complete demands, they will follow through. And sometimes you have children that look like they're too frustrated or they're too mad or they're too whatever to play, like they're blowing you off. And her point is, okay, you can't really change the kid. All you can change is how what you do to address that. And she's saying that we need to build in opportunities for children to be compliant and for them to be able to participate. And a lot of times with speech pathologists, that starts way lower than what your ultimate goal is for that kid. And we talk about meeting kids where they are a lot. And she talks about it but in a different way and in that if you're working with a kid who's a praxic, who the hardest thing in the world for him is to talk you don't necessarily start at talking with that kind of kid. You get him to complete a series of fun, easy, one-step commands so he gets used to responding and used to being compliant and used to being with you and engaged. And then you bump him up continuously so that not responding is not an option. It's you. He can never not respond to what you're doing. And she feels that we as therapists need to incorporate a lot of this and really teach parents that if if you don't have time for a kid to go get his shoes in the morning 
it would be better for you just to go get the darn shoes yourself than to give him a command that you don't think he's going to do because you don't want to teach kids that it's okay not to respond or to be non-compliant. And it's just a more technical, academic, fascinating way to look at what we say every week on this program with meeting kids where they are and with keeping your expectations realistic to get them hooked and then you bump it on up as you go. And then because you've built in that pattern of positive responding, they keep going, and that's how you get a kid there. You don't necessarily start with the hardest thing in the world for a kid to do. Again, it's a much more academic read than listening to you and me talk about it or you and I talk about it, <laughs> but it's a great read. So I wanted to uh, post that link and say that. All right, to wrap up this show, let me say that one thing that we didn't talk about is what you do when you first get there. You gave a good example of that, Kate. If the kid is raring to go, if he's sitting in the middle of the floor looking at me like, come on, I might dive right in and start playing. But more often than not, I'm saying hi to the mom, washing my hands and saying to her, How'd your homework go? What's he done new this week? Tell me how your week went. So that I start talking with her and having her be, or him if it's a dad, be involved in the session from the very beginning. And I want to hear their questions at the beginning and as we go, not as I'm walking out the door. And so it's really important for you to schedule when you're when you're thinking about scheduling with your sessions. You don't just, if you're seeing a kid at home, you don't just play with the kid and have your session and then talk to the parent. I think you need to be talking to the parent the entire time and listening and answering their questions and explaining what you're doing and talking about how they can incorporate these things into their daily routines. And then at the end, I always wrap up with leaving a note or leaving some kind of written um, homework or their to-do list or whatever your program wants to call it so that they have an expectation of what they should be doing. I mean, I would never want to leave a parent with them not understanding what we did in therapy and what I expect them to do about all that to carry over the skills that we're targeting in therapy. And a lot of times I'll hear a parent, I'll say, what are you working on? If they're, Especially if they're emailing me from the website, and they'll say, sometimes they'll say, she just talks to me and is really vague. I don't really know. Or they'll say, she just plays and then she leaves. I don't really, I'm not sure what they're working on. And that is so bad (laughs) to have a parent. And sometimes it's, again, you're telling the parent they just haven't gotten it with what you're doing. But you have to make sure that you're really reaching them and you're communicating in a way so that they know what you've worked on and how they're supposed to be addressing those things at home, too. And that's huge especially with early interventionists and home visits. And that's one of the reasons that all these states have gone to that crazy consultative natural environment kind of thing. It's because therapists weren't building that into their sessions. If parents were, when therapists left, parents still didn't know what to do. And so you can't go so far the other way that all you do is sit and talk to them and you don't really show them how to do it. You've got to be able to do both so that they know what to do that you're modeling it for them, but that they're very clear with what your goals are and how they can work on that at home. And that's huge, 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 huge. 
Right. And really, Laura, I mean, the truth is that as much as we like to think we know what we're doing, and I think we do for the most part, but, you know, our best successes are always the situations where mom and dad are really, really reinforcing what we've asked them to Absolutely. do. Those yeah. are the kids that we just think, wow, look at how far he or she's come. It's a miracle. And it really, I mean, it doesn't, you know, we can do wonderful things in our one hour a week. And those kids but. without any support from the parents are not going to make the progress that the kids whose parents really, really follow up and do what we ask them to do and implement all those strategies that we give them. And I know sometimes that's hard to do, but it's really critical in the the success for the child. So. Yeah, it is critical. And if you're a therapist listening and you don't know how to do that or you're terrible at that, Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual has there are sections that have those those domains worked out with social your social stuff, your cognitive stuff, and then huge chapters on receptive and expressive language. And for every milestone and every goal you could write about a kid, there are activities to address that. And then there's a homework section. It says, for homework, ask mom too. And that's what I've gotten the most positive feedback on, even from therapists who've, who've worked for a long time. These aren't just the newbies. <laughs> that I get the emails from, but therapists that say, oh, my gosh, thank you so much for giving me homework that's realistic that a parent would do. And so it's all it's written right there for you. It's a great tool if, if you need that in your practice to help bump you up to that next level. You know, please take a look at that because all that, all that stuff is already thought out for you. So wanted to mention that, too. And the link for that is on... Uh, the Facebook page, teachmetotalk.com's Facebook page, or you can find it there at the website at teachmetotalk.com. Okay, Kate, parting words on this topic? Oh, my. Um, I don't know that I have anything profound to say, Laura. Go Hoosiers. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, you're ready. Get off here. We're five minutes over. You're, we're on basketball time now. Okay, well, I hope that we answered Erica's question with how we plan, what we do, and how we wrap up. We always wrap up with a mom. I would never just kind of say, okay, see you next week. You've always got to frame your session and give give them a directive, an action that you want them to complete. I'm pretty specific about that. And, again, if you want to need some help with that, I've given you a resource for that. Um, but Wait, I do have one thing I want to say. Okay. I do have one profound thing. Um, you have lots of profound see, things. Oh, I know, but I'm just going to share this. You're being silly, yeah. I am, but I'm serious about this. Because I see this happen a lot in the trenches with real-life therapists and real-life children, and certainly it's something that you totally uh, have embraced and written about and demonstrated and everything else, but that... that um, probably the most important thing for that planning is... is a, is to effectively um, visit and look at and have a good understanding of that developmental hierarchy that you always talk about and how that applies to each individual child. Because I see that happen a lot where therapists don't necessarily know what right. the child's skills or, or weaknesses are. 
Um, you know, they don't know how connected they are socially, really. They don't know what their receptive language skills are, really. They don't know even what would be appropriate play for a typically developing child that age, let alone one who has developmental issues. And so they're they're starting out without that understanding, and, and the end result is that they try and do things that are either too low for a kid, too high mm-hmm. for a kid, have right. unreasonable expectations, and so you can't really can't really win if you don't know going in. And I don't mean the test scores; I mean what, you, what, what have been your experiences? Real life, kid. Yeah. Yes, real life <laughs> stuff that you know what where he is and what's going to work. So you have a much better idea going in what that's going to be. And I right. see that happen a lot where therapists are trying to get a kid to do something that, one, he may be past, he's bored with it. And it's like, right. well, no wonder he doesn't want to play that toy. He's past that, and you've done right. it and done it and done it, and he's showing you with his behavior he's over it. A lot of times if I bump up the level of play with those kids, lo and behold, they are into it because all of a mm-hmm. sudden I hit them with something that was cool, something that they were interested in, maybe that challenged them a little bit but not so much that they were lost. Um, or they've set the expe- expectation way too high for a kid, and right. they don't understand it, they don't have the skills to engage in it, and the kid's answer to that more, more often than not is to get up and leave. So mm-hmm. I think, and that's just a real common basic thing, but I do think when you really look at that hierarchy, Lauren, I personally have never heard anybody articulate it in exactly that way or that clearly, and it was really, has really helped me and as I look at kids. You know, if you look at those things in that order, it will give you a really good idea where that kid is functioning and what reasonable expectations you can go in with and exactly. and hope to and you apply that to what you do with them, and boom, it's a success. Yeah, and so the, I think it's just key. It's just critical. Boy, would I have loved a book like that when I was starting out <laughs> to be able to help me get through some of that stuff because you, it and is yeah, I really see, I mean, it's, it's really not uncommon for really pretty seasoned therapists. Right, Whether they get wrong. the Make, well, they may get the theory, but they don't get yeah. the implementation. They don't apply it right. to each and every individual child, and right. so they're they're starting off two steps behind because they don't really understand what this child is capable of or isn't capable right. of, right. and they're not really presenting things that are appropriate for a variety of reasons, and that's a lose. You're going to lose. You know, that is not exactly. going to be the best session you could have because you started out in the wrong place. And if you just right. apply that hierarchy and know basically where that kid is, you're going to have way more successes than if you just randomly take in a toy or present something that's for some reason totally inappropriate. Yeah, and the therapy manual, I've spent so much time in there. It's not just, there are so many examples and so many mm-hmm. um, scenarios. And those scenarios are from our real lives when... <laughs> We hear stories. You would call me and say, listen to this. You know, it's based on that, again, real-life experience. And we all make mistakes. I mean, that's how you learn. But if you're not willing to kind of adjust on a per-kid, kid-by-kid-by-kid basis, and that's where a lot of seasoned therapists really make their mistakes is they 
they've always done it this way and they're going to continue to do it this way without really being able to um, try some new tricks and adjust a little bit. And it is, a, I mean, it is an art, too, with figuring out where a kid is and when to push and when to hold back and when to when to bump it up developmentally or when it's too too hard and you have to it's it's not always easy to figure those things out but that's the cool part about this job it never gets boring and you can uh, always have clinical challenges you know each and every day so, which is why I love it so much so you know what I think, Laura, we'll I think wait I have one oh, more profound statement <laughs> I'm just there's got a treasure trove of jewels you're tonight. so philosophical today I know I don't know what it is but here's another thing. I think a lot of times the reason they miss that on an individual basis or it can be missed is if the therapist isn't really totally engaged when they are just going through the motions, when they haven't reached that heightened level of arousal themselves, they are not really perceptive about where a kid is socially, where a kid is cognitively, where a kid is receptive language-wise, where, you know, and so they don't really have a clear idea, and it's amazing to me, but I think it is because they they aren't fully committed during sessions sometimes, and they're just kind of going through the motions, and if you really pinned them down and said, where do you think this kid's functioning, whether they know him or not, they wouldn't have a very good idea, and I think it is from being kind of detached themselves, and I think when you yeah. go in and you are hyper-focused on a kid and you are hyper-focused on what you're doing and how is he responding and you really turn it on that way, that's why it's so much more rewarding because mm-hmm. you get so much more and they get so much more. Exactly. Does, You're not phoning it, it in. therapists who kind of, yes, go through the motions of having fun, except nobody's having fun, you know? Right. <laughs> like, you know, you want to say, have you ever videoed yourself? Because you would not, you would turn it off in utter disbelief at how disengaged you looked or how mean you looked or how whatever. Bored. I mean, it is a yes. bored. bored. Yeah. And so you've mm-hmm. got to really, I don't know, it's it's a big gut check. It's a gut check. And again, therapists who are listening to the show, we're preaching to the choir. They are listening to shows about how to <laughs> make themselves a better therapist and stuff. So it may not be the people who should really hear the message, but hopefully, you know, it's a good reminder for all of us. And uh, I love the therapists, too, who routinely listen and who are routinely seeking more information and wanting to make themselves better and, you know, doing all these things that are above and beyond that. A therapist today put on TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page, do we get continuing education credits for listening to the podcast? You know, I wish I got them for doing the podcast. I was going to say, what do you mean listening? (laughs) I've been doing them for years and I haven't gotten one credit. (laughs) Or a dime either. And so, you know, the these are just things that, again, I go back to that whole character issue. It's just what you do to make yourself the very best you can be at your job. And apparently, you know, that, I don't know, some people don't really care that much about that, but I don't understand how that could be your career and people not get really fired up about it and, and want to do better. So, I Again, I they think they fail to recognize the difference. I don't think they really get how much more rewarding it could be, how much better their their kids could do, 
if they just tweak some things. You know what I mean? I'm not sure yeah. they've seen it. I think it's right. like when I had my aha moment with you many years ago, that's when I got it. And it's not yeah. really that much harder to do it right. I just don't think they recognize that they're not. So, But Maybe as you so. said, the Maybe people who so. listen to this show either – are you know whether they're new or they've been at it as long as we have they're they're trying to tweak it and that is the fun of this job no matter how good we think we are we all have a kid right. on our caseload that we're scratching our heads thinking hmm what's gonna work here <laughs> I know I shoot I shoot video of myself that I think I'm not showing that to anybody yeah <laughs> or I could tweak I could show it as the example of here's what I should have done what yeah, not that, to do yeah 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 but that's the mm-hmm. beauty of this job and of being self-analytical and of moving it forward. So, again, it's a, it's a pretty cool job. Very cool job. All right. I don't know what we're going to talk about next week, but if any of you listening have a question like Erica just did, and I just signed on Facebook, and she said, oh, no, I think I missed a live podcast of this. She was going to call us and tell us, um, call us and participate. But we might hold this topic over one more week. I don't know. I don't know what next week's show is about. So if someone has um, a suggestion, if you want to do that, that would be great. If Erica is listening and has more questions, if we didn't quite talk about what you wanted us to talk about. Sometimes uh, we, we can... do get off on our tangents. We may have some specific questions, and we love those too. So. She might, and I'm thinking there's a couple. There are a couple things that I want to talk about that I didn't get to talk about. So let's just go ahead and plan to hold this topic over one more week with session outlines, and let's do this, Kate. This week, when you're seeing kids, and I think you have a much busier week this week than I do with sessions, try to think about kind of typical session outlines, what you did, how many different toys you played with, why did you switch, those kinds of things. And then the other thing I'm going to talk about next week are in uh, the therapy manual there are two sample, oh, excuse me, sample session outlines that I did, one for a kid at about the 12-month developmental level, one at about the 24-month developmental level, and I may write another couple of samples, and we'll go through those and talk about those. But I'd like to have your real-life stuff too. Okay, sounds good. And right now I have to go cheer for the Hoosiers because we are losing horribly. Oh, no. They need me. Go, IU. They need you. Go, go, go. Okay. Okay, bye. All right, that's all for this week. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.